Welcome back to Conversations at the Leaky Cauldron, Episode 2, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Chapters 5 through 10, Weasley's Wizard Wheezes, The Port Key, Bagman and Crops, The Quidditch World Cup, The Dark Mark, Mayhem at the Ministry, and back with us after the Thanksgiving break are, are my esteemed colleagues, Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Shens. Welcome back, you two. We have a big segment to bite off today. Yeah, thanks for that intro, man. That's a lot of chapters, but... We'll do our best. Yeah, good to be back. Happy belated Thanksgiving, y'all. Happy belated Thanksgiving. And the listeners have a little added incentive to listen. Um, did we decide uh, at beginning or end, Mr. Wesley Shantz? I, I have already forgotten. Uh, we have a little treat. Yeah, I think we'd better get our drinks ordered here since we are at the Leaky Cauldron, or at least <laughs> conversing as if we were. Um, and you know they're pretty busy, so they're put those orders in now, and hopefully they'll get here soon. You guys okay. have a, a magical drink in mind? Okay, well, do I, we have uh, to get the same one? Do we have to get the same one every time, or can we order different ones? I'm just no. You can you can okay. order whatever you want. Okay. Yeah, part of the magic is that you can keep using magic to diversify your experience at all times. And, uh, well, how about I start then? Um, just because I had suggested this when we were talking before the show, and I can change it if, if we want, but I suggest a drink uh, that if you drink it and lack Christmas spirit, now we're in December, it's appropriate to make these sorts of connections, um, even if you're a diehard Thanksgiving and you believe no Christmas before Thanksgiving, um, uh, and are more like me and do the Halloween way, well then, um, the idea, or excuse me, this Grinch-like uh, idea behind the drink would be that if you drink it and you lack Christmas spirit, you turn green. Um, and so tonight, I think I would be very much just my usual sort of ruddy color, because I'm feeling pretty spirited. How about y'all? Uh, yeah, I, I feel the, I feel the Christmas coming, and I, I need to start getting ready for it. Um, I thought I would celebrate the uh, Irish victory in the Quidditch World Cup and have some, you know, that like the milk that's left over after you've eaten the Lucky Charms, mm. and it's like, you know, it's all sweet and and uh, marshmallowy and whatnot. Yeah, so that I think that's magical enough. That sounds good. What is the magical like a effect of it? Um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. It hasn't quite kicked in yet, so I'll <laughs> let you guys know as I start to feel it. <laughs> what about like you? Distillation of, of cereal milk. Um, yeah, I think to celebrate the... I was also thinking about the Irish victory and it's sort of chilly out here in, in Seattle, and I'm pretty tired. So I was thinking about an Irish coffee, but I was tr I, I would like to include the fire whiskey that Mr. Weasley makes Mrs. Weasley drink to calm her down. So it would probably <laughs> be like, you know, yeah, because I actually, I love the flavor of Irish whiskey, or really like an Irish coffee. And um, it's it's late out here, so I feel like decaf coffee 
um, I'm forgetting the name of that fire whiskey that he gives her. Um, and then like Irish coffee is also made with like a dash of sugar and a dash of whipped cream. And so I think it would have to be like a kind of, um, special sugar. So starting to sound like a drug, um, <laughs> but like a special a special sugar that, um, well, obviously doesn't go straight to your hips, but also maybe like if you drink it in your tea or coffee or Irish coffee at night, it like clears your pores um, and like helps you sleep well. Uh, I'm just clearly thinking about sleep right now. <laughs> uh, so, right yeah. Uh well, and that's part of, yeah, our sort of our initiative to uh, hit some themes and do some different and uh, hit some usual or set some pillars to this uh, foundation and to um, hit some usual pieces. And so we also had some themes we wanted to consider through uh, these five chapters. And so where would y'all like to start, either with consideration of the chapters or with one of the themes we were considering? We were, we were seeing some foreshadowing happening, some figures of the father, also um, some fire images and some snake images like we had talked about, um, and also some suggestions of maybe where evil starts and uh, some more con sophisticated conceptions of it. And, or maybe we wanted to start somewhere totally different. What were y'all thinking? Well, well, I thought that you guys pointed out a couple of really good ones. Like, yeah, as you mentioned, the fatherhood, um, the various figures of fathers that we see and how they react to all these events, but also the um, the the whole theme of, of Hermione and the elves starts to, yes. to come out a little bit here. Um, so that was, a that was I thought, a really interesting one. Um, because I had forgotten all about like the ins and outs of this, the details of this scene. So it's it's Crouch's house elf who picks up Harry Potter's wand and is stunned by the um, the stupefy spell, right? And then they they wake her up and she protests that she didn't do it, and yet she's holding the wand and. Sorry, I did. I did have something, but it. I mean, it went away. I think that might be the effect of my um, my milk that I was just drinking. And, and so, so Winky had the wand, and the wand did, uh, with prior incantato, um, uh, cast the spell that uh, the the Moore's Mordra, um, dark mark spell, and so. Does that help at all with what it was you were saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So we, we as the reader, like, hear everything going on. Um, and we know that uh, Harry didn't cast the spell, right? But we are just as sort of flummoxed as everyone else as to how this house elf ended up in that spot in that moment. And Hermione has the explanation, right? Like, she remembers that the elf was scared of heights like that. That was impressive to me that she like picked up on that right away and like had that ready um, yeah. to defend. I, I was just like, she's even more impressive here. Um, and just like, you know, the, the muggles being tortured and how uh, Draco like taunts her with that too. Like she doesn't bat an eye at that. You know, she, she's like 
so um, so forceful in these chapters, as usual, I guess. Yeah, she really does start to grow into her sort of SJW role, and I don't say that disparagingly, but uh, again, she finds she's the one who really thinks through what the issue with the house elves is, because she thinks through what the actual relationship between them and their uh, masters is. And um, so she's the one who, again, gets the conclusion first and has the most forceful interpretation of it. And again, just like with Buckbeak, who is sort of erroneously um, charged with, um, with a crime he didn't commit, which she helped, which she helped to defend him against. Now she's, she's sort of building a case for these house elves and taking their side while also having Draco draw sort of an identity with them and that she is like those who are protected by the care of magical creatures, like someone who might potentially be targeted by dark wizards. And uh, it, she's becoming very defined as a character, I would say. It's, very, it's interesting also to what extent like Emma Watson embodies the same ideal in actual reality that Hermione seems to in the fictional one. Yeah, she she does like a a book club or something, right? Like I I don't know much about that. I guess I should check into that more. Um, but she does have a a book club, and she is like a UN ambassador for um, something. I know she gave like a really forceful speech at the United Nations on like gender equity around the world, um, uh, equal pay, and yeah, I mean, I guess. She grew up playing this character, and as you were saying, Alex, the character is extremely well-defined, and, you know, I guess I would be really surprised if there was no part of her that was affected by playing this character, but, yeah, I mean, I think, like, I just, I'm constantly impressed with her. I'm no longer surprised, but, like, her willingness to stand forth and speak to people who like other people clearly cower in front of like other people, particularly people who are considered like book smart, you know, like Percy just bowing so pathetically in front of a minister of magic, um, you know, like, like spinning himself into a dither over this boss who doesn't even know his name. And Hermione doesn't really care what his name is. She cuts to the chase and, chapter nine and um and stands up and and by the way like again like we saw in the shrieking shack is like the voice of reason who brings up like a very important sensory detail that should have exonerated winky that like that the voice of the person casting the spell was not the voice of a house elf and and like politics aside that's a pretty useful piece of evidence um and yeah, I, I think it's impressive to me, not surprising, like I said, but impressive that that she stands up to um, Mr. Diggory, that she stands up to Mr. Crouch. Um, and I, 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 yeah, I just, that's all it is. I find her impressive. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't find it annoying um, at all, actually, but um, like she's not. I don't know. I don't think she stands on, I don't think she's annoyingly principled, you know? Well, well and that takes me to what I think is a good segue and question to, for both of you now, which is, um, A, 
tell me what you think of the Quidditch World Cup and the spectacle of it. And then B, um, tell me also, please, what you think of the fact that in our pre in our pre-show conversations, the uh, Quidditch World Cup is almost completely overshadowed by the fact of what happens afterwards. These masked figures uh, puppeteering these muggles like 50 feet above their head, including children. And that is a detail not included in the movies. That is a dark detail of how dark wizards can be and why uh, and what they mm. can do to these muggles, including the memory charms that they use afterwards that leave them sort of groggy. That is, uh, it, it seems that what we're seeing here is that the uh, darkness in the wizarding world is also becoming more or better defined, just as these characters' personalities are, and perhaps also their realities around them are reflecting this more sophisticated personality or this maturing personality. Because that is, uh, because there's also, it, it seems like, and this connects to our one of our big themes today, this um, idea that evil is born in the home, especially if you look at like the orphans like Harry Potter and uh, Tom, Tom Marvolo Riddle who built his resentment and hate towards life in an orphanage without uh, families and Harry and that terrible family the Dursleys could very well have. But also we meet Barty Crouch and Amos Diggory, right? And we get to see both their sons. We'll see what Barty Crouch's son became and we'll be able to make connections between his father's behavior and his uptight sort of Nazi-esque authoritarianism um, though he happens to be on the right side at this moment, though perhaps not from how he treats his house elf. It just seems like a nightmare, his home. Um, but also Amos Diggory, who is very quick to accuse and has a very loose tongue when it comes to criticizing Harry Potter and his Quidditch ability early on, right? It makes uh, Ron's father wince and like change the subject. And so uh, he, there's something about Amos that's just a little bit off and maybe we can consider that. But we wanted to think about figures of the father and potentially how evil starts to become embodied or move from a representation to an embodied form throughout this, this, uh, this book um, as well. So <laughs> I guess any part of that question would be fine. I just wanted to lay some of that out for y'all. Oh yeah, totally. The one of the ways, um, that this plays out there is uh, uh, Mr. Weasley's um, remark after the Vila, you know, show their true form of um, this like bird headed monster and they start throwing um, fire at the leprechauns. <laughs> uh, he says, you know, that is why you should never go for looks alone. Uh, and so he gives a little fatherly advice there, right? And tells them to stuff their fingers in their ears when the Vila dance and sing. And, you know, it's very, it's very like siren song-esque. Um, and, and the Irish leprechauns, of course, are like the total opposite, right? They're, they're just, um, they're, they're rather um, Fred and George-esque, actually. Yes. Um, and, and those two um, make out like bandits with their bet against Ludo, right? Um, they call it, they totally call it. And, uh, and the interesting thing about that is, is that it can only happen because Crumb does it on his own terms, as they say, right? He, he ends the match before they, the score gets out of control. Um, and that's what, that's what they knew was gonna happen. So they, they clearly had some, uh, some good information or some good read of that situation. Um, both well for their future in the short term anyhow. And uh, 
the the thing about the fathers too though like besides giving good advice uh seems to be like a big pride thing um in both cases in different ways uh where diggory he's proud of his son for beating harry potter in quidditch um you know he's like better man must have won right and then um crouch is very very proud in the sense he's sort of like stiff and up upright you know he thinks that any little slight against him uh, really, really like, you know, detracts from his good name. Uh, and so he just won't stand for that. He's gonna, you know, he's gonna do the, the unthinkable and set his house self free. Like he, that, that's the punishment that he has in mind, um, which is a little ironic. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also important to to remember that um, earlier in chapter three, I think when Harry wrote to Sirius, he only um, considered writing to him after recognizing that he kind of wanted to talk to a father, father-like figure. Um, so yeah, advice. Um, but also, um, I think the father offers um, a kind of um, a, a series, like you said, um, series of, of lessons and um, Alex in your pre-show commentary you were indicating that maybe there's like a freedom that's granted to the child an appropriate level of freedom there was that one father who um, uh, like his son was playing with the, the wand or something and he got um, scolded by the mother like maybe given too much freedom um, to play around um, at the campsite but also I, I like how um, I like how Mr. Weasley doesn't ask the boys what they're going to do with the money that they won, um, maybe because he didn't want to know. Um, right. And he doesn't tell them that they're not allowed to gamble. He just sort of cautions them against it. Um, you know, don't tell your mother that whole thing. And I, I think that that's, there's like a, a maybe a happy medium of freedom that he accords them. Um, but he also is like very, um, uh, he creates the conditions for them to succeed, like demanding that they, they make the tent without magic um, as opposed to like holding their hand through it or um, doing it for them. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. I, I think, I mean, it's a lot like teaching, right? It, it does, and I think it, what's interesting is that it's part of how J.K. Rowling sort of skirts the line between sort of showing progressive themes as well as sort of traditional themes as well. Because on the one hand, we are starting to think a little bit more about wizarding and uh, house elf relations, and apparently there are some calcified beliefs that perhaps are not so appropriate anymore um, regarding them. But J.K. Rowling also seems to come down and on the side of the family, again, right? Like the father goes out with the kids and helps to build skill into them. The mother provides wonderful care at home, discipline, and um, um, remembers where they are and probably is the one who enchanted that clock. In some way, the Weasley clock is probably some sort of representation of the mother. I'd like to think about that a little if possible. It's just such a symbol. But she also cooks the meals for them, right? Um, she's And part of the reason they're poor seems to be that she's made the sacrifice of her wizarding career to be a good mother, right? And that, because she is a talented 
wizard in her own right. And we will see her, you know, show that skill at the Battle of Hogwarts at some point, um, or in the seventh book <laughs> at that point. Um, so I, I, think that's, I, I think that's really interesting to think about the Weasleys, just because they are sort of the family we get most access to. Um, though, of course, the other sort of traditional family is Draco's family, right? With uh, Narcissa, who we meet, who also, at least so far as I know, is a stay-at-home mother. Though, um, you know, they don't have, what, nine kids? Seven kids? Seven, is it? Yeah, it's seven, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, seven, seven kids um, and maybe not a lot of, like, inherited or ancient money. I think that that's the other thing that it brings up, too, is that um, there's, a, there's, like, an incredible class dynamic. The Crouches and the Malfoys have house elves, but, but the Weasleys don't. I mean, they're a pure-blood family, and they don't have a house elf. Like, there is a, there is a class dynamic to this as well that, I mean – yeah, I think is, is at least worth noting. Um, and, uh, I think maybe indicates is indicated when, um, Arthur Weasley tells Hermione that like, I agree with you, but we can't have this conversation right now. We need to get home. <laughs> um, uh, you know, with regard to house or to elf, right. Um, but like sometimes when you, when you take certain stands on principle, um, that maybe, you don't get, you don't earn, just, just like in the primary world, you don't get to make boatloads of money. I mean, as a side note, like I was at this silly baby shower. It wasn't a silly baby shower. Um, it was a nice baby shower, but I was very uncomfortable. I was the, totally the odd person out. Um, and I just, I absolutely, I don't know if you guys ever get this, but I absolutely loathe when people at a at a, like a mixer or a party or some kind of some some kind of event like that when you know people are talking about what they do and um it comes to me and I'm like oh well, I teach high school and they're like oh my goodness thank you so much for your service as though like I'm doing them a service right or like the like the 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 propensity to like make noble the the impoverished choice um and I'm not I don't I mean I just I I would just say that like I all three of us could have chosen to do something else with our lives that would be more lucrative right but but like money and like rising through ranks of class distinction is not at the moment what we've chosen to do with our lives as a consequence we can't hire people to like do our stuff for us you know um and I think that that's part of it too um is like who you know not having money um changes a little bit of who they are oh definitely yeah yeah like and they're so like that's what's so cool about Fred and George I feel like in this moment because like suddenly they're flush and so now they can like mm -hmm. do what they've always dreamed of doing you know they can actually make it happen um and I, I totally agree with you about the the feeling of um, like being made a martyr or something for your your profession. Yeah. It's yeah. Um, I mean, I think people's it's probably well intentioned or whatever. And oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, but but yeah. I mean, 
I still I, don't like it. <laughs> it's yeah, it's not it's not that I'm doing this because it's something that's, you know, painful and uh and uh, it makes me feel like very noble or something. It's like this is what I really enjoy doing and it it it's the lifestyle that I'm, you know, I'm I'm happy to to have like I feel very fortunate to get to just read books and talk about them all day. Uh, exactly. Would, yeah. <laughs> I, I was just going like to say I think the 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 money thing is going to really start to flummox Ron. Like at the end of the chapter when he says something about why yeah. is everything I own rubbish? Um, and he, you know, um, we know that he's been un like always a little uncomfortable at how Harry has more money than he does, you know, um, but he is like his, his place in the socioeconomic hierarchy is going to bother him. My guess is it also bothers um, the Weasley twins, but they're, they're innovating around it, I guess. And I think that that's, that's sort of a different tactic than, well, than the one that Ron seems to take. I think that they have, yeah, fundamentally different attitudes to the situation and that what's being shown here is that they both have opportunity and that what the, the twins choose to do is to supervene it. They grew up poor. They're not going to stay poor. They're going to use their minds to make a whole bunch of money because they're clever, they're intuitive, they make all the right choices. The only thing standing in their way is their mom. And she, frankly, doesn't have the vision that they do because what they're doing no. is that which is going to make them super successful. And she shows also when she, when she gets so upset and hugs them when they come back after having left on a fight and thinking something might have happened to them, that she, she's been so mad at them precisely because she loves them so much. Um, but she, she does not have the vision they have when it comes to their endeavors. And then Ron is going to sort of steep himself in resentment, right? Like he sees what he does yeah. and instead of taking the path necessary to accomplish that, he's going to sort of just sit in what he doesn't have and continue not to have it. And I think that will, you know, uh, that will rear its head with this upcoming tournament thing. But it, it's interesting too, you know, he's not on the Quidditch team either. And I guess there's not going to be Quidditch this season, but he's, he's not developing because he's not putting in the work to develop. And it's interesting because this reminds me also of the second cornice of Purgatorio, which I just taught through with the envious who are blind and they're blind because they don't see the path that people take to give mm -hmm. them. The path. They only see what they themselves do not have and imagine they deserve it. So they need charity to fix themselves. But also it's funny because we saw those Vila who are like sirens. And also the second dream Dante has is of a siren, which is when you see it from afar with the light of the intellect, you see it for how ugly it really is. But when you let it touch you, when you hear its song, when you let the sensual experience waft over you, that which is ugly in effect seems beautiful because of its uh, sensual, because of the sensual experience of it. Um, and it's interesting seeing those lessons come again and again throughout this text. But I totally agree that they're different attitudes and that Ron's attitude is, uh, you know, sort of deteriorating. We're already seeing it. And I, I don't, I don't think that that's, I mean, I think that he chooses to be that way, right? Yeah, and I also think, like, I don't see the Weasleys as setting out to make, uh, you know, to just make boatloads and boatloads of galleons. I see them as setting out to, like, do what they love and are good at. For sure. Maybe, For that's, sure. maybe that's my lens. And that part of why their mom is so 
against it is she's worried about what it means for them and maybe a little bit about what it means for the family name, but what it means for them, like in terms of their comfort, you know, the way that she talks about, like, if you didn't get enough OWLs, like, what are you, you know, what's going to, what's going to happen to you? <laughs> you, you know, um, that's so interesting, Sarah, because it makes me think because Percy has this ministry job, Bill has this charm breaking job. Charlie has this, uh, like Dragon's job, right? They have these high-ranking jobs, and she doesn't want them going mm-hmm. out and making money with this joke shop. Maybe it, it reflects, I'm not sure, sort of an insecurity on her part uh, mm. about, you know, them going out and just doing this and what that would say about the family, that she sort of feels a, a sort of need or desire for them to go, you know, make as much of themselves as their brothers. Um, but I, I, I mean... Gosh, I really think the Weasleys are made to make jokes, right? Like, they are the, oh, yeah. they are like the perfect Hermes figures. Um, do you think we can talk about the, the match? Are you gonna, or do we want to continue with? Let's do it. What would you all think of it? I just, I wanted to posit something that I think is like an important pattern. Um, and maybe it it's only a pattern that's about to emerge. And, but I I do think that the game is sort of um, microcosmic in a way, at least in a metaphoric way, like the um, increasing brutality of the game, um, the increasing fouls and violations. um, And the, the way that the Irish squad is able to win as a consequence of, um, uh, the choices of the one on the other team, as well as their ability to work together in contrast to say what in the Bulgarian team, it, it, it really does seem like it's a, it's a one man show. Um, at least, at least in the way, I mean, at least in the way that the team is depicted. Um, and, and I could be a little bit affected by, by the movie. Um, but I think that that's a significant, a significant dynamic and that um, uh, sometimes victory is something that you stumble into, um, that there's like the importance of, of the community working together in tandem. I, d- I just think that, that that's, a, that's important, um, as well as the, the fact that the seeker on the Irish team, uh, like, gets, gets faked, gets hoodwinked. <sighs> Um, and that I think, I think that that's, that's funny on the one hand, because, um, something we've been talking about all along is like the, maybe the metaphor of being the, the seeker on the squad and, you know, he like plummets to the earth, but, um, but also what that looks like if you map the game onto the plot of the remainder of the, of the novel or the series of novels is like, um, the, the temptation to be the, the star um, comes with a lot of burdens and responsibilities, but also um, you know, it comes with the sacrifice of the, the community or the community victory, the team win. And I think anybody who's ever been on a team knows just how, how like wonderfully satisfying that is. Um, I, and I, I just wanted to throw that out there. And do you see, see what, that as a see what the dog picked up? 
do you see that also as a microcosm for like the villain and his extraordinary power, but incapacity to work with a team in an optimal way yeah. and, and sort of the hero and, and his then, ability to galvanize a team around the goal that he shares, you know, sort of like the father to the son or whatever. Yes. And I think um, it's not perfect, right? I don't want to equate Victor Crumb with Voldemort, sure. but um, for, like achieving, achieve, you know, um, Crumb, what he seizes the snitch, but loses the game is to me a metaphor for, um, you know, winning a battle, but losing the war. Yes. Um, and, um, and, you know, there was nothing in, in it um, that seemed like Crumb himself was fundamentally incapable of playing on a team. You know, he wasn't like uh, a ball hog or anything, but, um, but just, uh, it seemed like the way people deferred to him, like the way the crowd reacted to him, that, um, that part of what we know, um, uh, about, I mean, what we know having read the rest of the series is that um, Voldemort doesn't esteem anyone on his level. And as a consequence, he like uses people, right? For And they have a utility, they serve their purpose. And, and it's ultimately his own decisions um, and his own flaws that drive those decisions that, that lead to his own defeat. And I think that that, I think I just think that that's just, that's significant. Um, but I agree, I agree, I'll, and that that seems totally significant. That though he wins the specific battle, he loses the war. He loses the superordinate game, the game of games. So yeah, mm -hmm. Wes, what do you think of all this? I really like this uh, idea. Of, you know, especially since it does have this aspect of. Um, gathering the crowd there to observe all this too right it's a spectacle and um and that's very much like you know all of us reading the book and there's people from from all around the world who've gathered here you know uh for the first time we see a little bit of diversity in the wizarding world uh or a little more than before um and that again is like brought into the story immediately too in this whole thing about um the elves uh, and and of course the the uh, superiority of wizards versus muggles and and this and that right um, and also uh, the way that the um, the poor referee gets uh, entranced by the villa I ah. thought was really interesting <laughs> too right so it's like you know not to like make too much of that but it's it's the case that in these books the the authority figures are not always there to to save the day right like it it seems that way at first a little bit like you have this kind of omnipotent dumbledore um and he's always sort of there in the background for for the foreseeable future but but he he too is not totally infallible right um and uh he can't he can't prevent some of the um the offenses and the uh, the fouls and stuff, right? Because he's, well, he's only human. When he can't uh, predict the next Birdie's Bot's bean he's going to eat either. And that's something <laughs> I actually wanted to bring up that isn't Dumbledore conspicuously absent while the Minister of Magic 
and all the ministry officials are rather present here. And do you think that has any connection with the fact that Harry Potter loses his wand in a dark wood when something chaotic is happening and nobody understands what to do? Is he losing his head in this situation? Um, and what does it mean that this house elf gets a hold of his wand? And is this a true mystery even to us, I think, which we were mentioning earlier the, about the wand? Like, was it used by the house elf? Was the house elf under one of these unforgivable curses that we're soon going to learn about? Um, you know, was it commanded to do this or that? There, there are layers that I feel like we can feel but don't yet see uh, the import of rippling underneath this story. And I do like what you mentioned about the spectacle of the, uh, the Quidditch sport. And that is, an, that is an epic motif too, right? Like usually a, a large like race, like a chariot race in, in uh, the Iliad or a ship race in the Aeneid. Um, something, something of uh, tremendous momentum and import. And so her taking on a World Cup with a world-level audience, I think is spectacular. And I think that is the right word. And uh, it really does, I think, generate that epic scope in this book uh, more than any other beforehand. Um, I, I fully agree. And I think it's also um, a good, and we talked about um, on our Slack chat beforehand about like foreshadowing. It's a good, like, uh, it seems like it's the highest stakes of games, right? Um, but in, in contrast to the game that we'll see later, it's like a very low stakes game. Um, and it's a game where we already as readers know all the rules, whereas we might not for the future games. But I think, um, I think the other, I, I definitely agree that it's this very epic moment where um, maybe like the stakes of the world are presented to us that like um, magic, we learn um, that there's another school. Um, we learn that people all across the, um, you know, the, at least the European world. Um, so also I think across the entire world, um, our plan, our, our, you know, trying to get to the Quidditch World Cup and in terms of having their teams represented. And it, it maybe is a way of reminding the reader, like, what's really at stake. It's not just about Hogwarts and whether or not they, like, pass their exams. But this is much, much bigger, which, to your point, Alex, maybe is why the minister of ma the ministers of magic um, are are visible. I think also a really important part of the of the um Quidditch World Cup scenes like the the um scenes running up to the match and also the scenes following the match um with one of the things they present is sort of like what are the um uh causes of and consequences of a mob and how like i think you know groups of people enjoying the same thing all together is on the one hand like on its own benign right but on the other hand like how quickly does that become something else um and how quickly are people do people like like you said like lose themselves um how, how quickly are people swept up in um hysteria how quickly are people driven 
to, you know, near suicide um, for the, the magical powers of these, like, effectively these female cheerleaders. Um, how quick, right, like, how quickly do people devolve into taunting the other? How quickly do those taunts become um, cultural, culturally accepted ways of looking at somebody who's different? How quickly do those things become um, customs? How quickly do those become legalized or systematized and how quickly does one mob over a series of days and weeks and months that's reinforced how quickly does that become like a societal danger I know I'm like I'm not I'm not using the language of our current political reality but like the nature of the mob and I think sports are a really great example of like some of the good things that come from being in the group, right? Like group identity and enthusiasm. And I like seeing my team win. And um, I like having a group to identify with. I love putting on my Notre Dame sweatshirt and like cheering on the Irish and it's great. But like, at what point do, do the good things go away and the bad things come about such that people are like beating the shit out of people, out of, out of people who are different, who don't have papers or who are, people of color who love differently or worship differently or like we're born somewhere else. And then they get put in camps, you know, like, sorry to, to continually bring this up the, the current political climate, but like what happens, like you said, what happens after the, the match is like fucked up. Like, um, and were people just, did they lose their minds? Was this the consequence of the, frenzy of the match um i want to talk about that because um i think you brought up that group identity has a positive face what we see with the irish and the bulgarians and what everybody's doing in the world and then we see the direct negative of taste right when it's all of a sudden death eaters with a bunch of people around them seeming to cheer them on which is even creepier and uh sort of ministry officials and so i wanted to sort of ask you wes what do you think it's supposed to mitigate between that in a time when like people polarize like that and you go one side or the other, is there a third way or what, you know, what, what is it that could keep that from being an eventuality? Well, it seems like the Weasleys at least uh, opt for a couple different responses where on the one hand they send the vulnerable kids out to get them clear so that they're not caught up in the, uh, the mob and, everything there. On the other hand, then uh, the older brothers and uh, Arthur both, they, they all kind of go straight towards it and try to um, bring order to it, right? That's like their response. So I think the, uh, the response is not adequate, of course, as Rita Skeeter points out in her scathing article, right? Uh, they, they don't catch the perpetrator of the dark mark and uh, and they don't prevent, you know, rumors at least of of violence and uh, and they've. I think part of it is that they weren't really prepared, you know, like they didn't. Um, it's it's emphasized over and over how Ludo Bagman, who's like supposed to be in charge of everything, is kind of a he's kind of washed up, you know. He's really a charismatic and fun guy, but he's not like got everything together, and so partly it's the preparation beforehand that was lacking and like 
those institutional pieces are not there. And yeah, it, it must be said, right? Like Dumbledore is absent, you know, whatever he's doing, he's, he's not got his eyes on this right now where he could have perhaps, perhaps, you know, helped in some small way. But so there's lots of things I guess might say about that. Um, I find it really interesting. I want to throw this out there that the dark mark actually has the effect of dispersing the mob because they're afraid of it too, as Hermione or someone explains. Maybe it's Bill. Yeah, it's Bill who explains that. What did you make of that? Well, I thought that was interesting because I think it brings up the theme of what's genuine and what's not. And that's something we're going to focus on with Mad-Eye Moody and potentially a later iteration and manifestation of him. Because um, I think uh, something that's going to continue to be a theme throughout these books, or I would hypothesize will be, is um, uh, who is really loyal to the Dark Lord and who is really loyal to Albus Dumbledore and what does loyalty actually look like in reality? Um, Because uh, something that keeps being brought up and something that's brought up in the very first chapter is do not lie to me, Voldemort says. And so the sort of truth, the relationship between the truth and the line and true intention and untrue intention. And so this dark mark, which is supposed to indicate a death has happened, is shot up. A death has not happened. So it's sort of an apparition or a foreshadowing of something to come, potentially to rattle people up and potentially to galvanize people. But to rattle which people I think you bring up as a question is a good one. The original Death Eaters or, or who are maybe now scared or new pe- or you know the people that weren't Death Eaters. But even if it is shot up there to scare the original Death Eaters who escaped Azkaban. I think it's also to sort of tell them to shape up and get ready to rejoin the ranks. Um, but yeah, no, Sarah, what did you think of it? Yeah, that's a great question, Wes. Um, I wonder if, so the dark mark, I mean, it disperses people, but it also causes a deep amount of fear. Um, and and that is pretty, fear is so insidious, right? Um, it, it, it's a villain that, uh, or an enemy that has no name or face um, and no body. And, um, you know, when you make fear, or, or, or I mean, when the enemy is just something that you can't see, but is something that you're instead afraid of or you're told to be afraid of, um, you see it in a lot of other places. Um, I, the, the reason I'm thinking about that right now, based on, on the, the, your comment, is that um, we're about to teach, I'm about to teach an ethics unit in January. And one of the things that they always do is they talk about like the ethics of war and um, uh, conscientious objection and uh they bring in someone to talk who worked at the school for a really long time and served in Vietnam but we also apparently are supposed to show this like incredibly graphic front PBS frontline video about the My Lai massacre and one of the things that that they talked about in that um in that frontline is just that like um when you don't actually know what it is that you're afraid of or that or like the shape of the thing that's making your, you afraid, it almost, um, it, it means that you see like the enemy in the person next to you, or you can't 
you can't rightly see um, uh, where the evil is. It's like being faked out, uh, like the the faint um, that that Crumb makes in the middle of the match. Um, and I guess like the dark mark, yes, it disperses the crowd physically, but it actually I think does more damage to them emotionally. Um, and insofar as that was its intent, it was highly effective. I don't, I don't know that we can ascribe that to the actual maker of the mark, who, who I do think we end up figuring out who it is in the book. But um, yeah, and it's interesting to what extent it's related to a figure whose name you cannot speak, and it is a symbol itself with a snake coming out of the mouth of a skull, something dead, with something living coming out of it, which reminds us quite a bit of the image of the basilisk coming out of the face of Salazar Slytherin in the second book. Um, and so, yeah, and, and, and to what extent um, that's related to um, identity and not revealing one's identity and, uh, and, and or, or, or how evil takes shape in obscurity. When you refuse to face something, yeah. When you allow a darkness to exist, a fungus can grow there unperturbed by the light of your consciousness. And that is like the truly evil thing, right? That the ministry allows to happen without Dumbledore there to help. Like that, um, and, and will right. be a source of great contention, right? Between Dumbledore and- No, and I was just gonna say like, in addition to that, it, it emphasizes um, like subtly, but, I think it effectively does so this idea of a regaining of shape um which will you know will figure into the story at the end um but that idea that like darkness obscurity um like the things being opaque I want to say that there is a a noun for that like opacity or something like that Mm -hmm. but I could be wrong but um how much that will figure into all of the trials of the tournament um and how um yeah i i i think um just the the mob mentality and like not knowing what it is that you should be against like what that looks like we see that in the way that the kids start to interact with each other at hogwarts like as soon as the 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 cup announces the names and stuff like that um yeah, I I think the uh, the the point you make about um, you know team or tribal unity uh, being on the one hand good, on the other hand bad. I think the same thing could be said for fear too. Like it's not universally a bad thing to feel fear. Um, it can be really helpful. Right? It can really motivate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but. But yeah, in in most cases, panic fear is not a great thing and something that we work pretty hard to prevent. Uh, And yeah, the dark mark is like the ultimate um, sort of symbol of that, like breaking out of of attempts to to rein it in. The, I'm for some reason like feeling like this should be connected to, to that stuff we were talking about earlier too, about like, the kinds of um, fatherly emotions, you know, like those two, like fatherly pride can be really good, can be very um, 
like uplifting or whatever i'm sure uh but it's also like obnoxious and downright um you know uh, contentious in other cases um so it's it's really cool how how multifaceted these um strong passions are that are being brought forth here and i i, I know that we're going to have cho chang make her appearance as well to sort of go along with the velas right the that whole like um aspect of desire and ron's reaction to the dress robes right this kind of like stubbornness and frustration of you know his 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 wounded pride um that that seems like a real central theme throughout this uh fourth book and wow you're really making me think of sort of a freudian interpretation of voldemort's intentions with bringing up the father in that way that it's sort of a a rejection of the father or an attempt to destroy the father's kingdom, the kingdom of Mufasa, the kingdom of light, Hogwarts, or the known kingdom of magic, right? And to upset the rule of the father, which is the rule of law, right? So what does he do? He's the ultimate sort of harbinger of death. He, he chooses who will die and then throws a mark of pure defiance into the sky above it saying, I have chosen to break the ultimate rule of the father. As a citizen of this world, I betrayed this person in the ult ultimate way. And so that he's sort of making orphans of people in the same way that he was an orphan, that he's yeah. sort of, yeah. No, I, I, and he drinks snake milk, so that's gross. <laughs> um, well, y'all, um, do we have maybe a small point that we want to end on? One thing I did want to bring up was just, again, J.K. Rowling, always friend of the classics, Ludo Bagman. His name comes from Ludus, which means play. And the Ludus Magnus was the great game. And that was what was, uh, I believe, inscribed above the Colosseum's gate. And uh, he was a beater, we know, just as the Weasleys are now beaters. And it's interesting that he's sort of a dated uh, game master and that he loses sort of a bet to these Weasleys sort of showing them uh, coming to age right but maybe they're the new game masters and they do seem to be being you know they do seem to have the Midas touch um, but I wanted to sort of just throw that in as a didactic point but um, I'm, I'm ready to discuss it's also yeah. I, I was just gonna say it's also the name of the planet where um, uh, the main character in Ready Player One goes to learn um oh. it's where all the schools are yeah um have you have you guys read that book oh it's love so that good. movie love that movie haven't read the book yet uh, i definitely want to talk about that with y'all i love it uh, the book is so i i haven't seen the movie but the book is so like in the tradition of ferris bueller and has <laughs> all of these like wonderful 80s references that I just, as a child of the 80s and the early 90s, I love um, so much John Hughes and Star Wars and War Games and all these like old Atari video games. It's great. Um, I love that. Well, Wes, what should we wrap it up with? And then- Well, okay, so now we've, we've had our drinks. So we've got to, I guess, uh, pay the bill here. Um, I, you know, I totally forgot to bring my uh, galleons today, so I'll get you guys next time. I'm gonna just, or maybe I'll have to like wash some dishes here or something. 
Oh, we'll see what we gotta do. It's all right. Can I brought, you, can you... I, I brought my wand, and we can just use an obliviate charm. Is there is there like a way to like a magical Venmo or something like that? Cash <laughs> uh, app. It's okay. I brought some of that Irish gold that they were throwing <laughs> at the World Cup, and so I can pay with that. There we go. All right, quick, run before they find out. Yeah, run uh, for next time. Uh, I really want to read everything, but um, I don't think I'm going to have as, enough time. But how about through 11, 12, 13, and then what do y'all feel about getting through 13 as opposed to 14 or 14 as opposed to 13? Uh, I know 15 is also a, a really big one. Um, what is the chapter title there? Bobaton or Bobaton and Durmstrom. Dang, yeah. I don't, uh, I don't mind reading more. Like, it's up to you guys. Um, but there's so many characters now. Like, there's so much to keep straight. I think, yeah, I feel like maybe there's going to be a lot to talk about with um, chapter 14 as well. But okay. um, maybe, maybe I'd, I'd be willing to go through chapter 15 um, in my book. That's like, oh my God, that's like 80 like, pages. Yeah, it's like, it's like a solid not 90 pages. So, well, let's, let's try at least to like 14 and then we'll see if we can get to 15. And uh, we can check in later in the week. and. Uh, figure that out sounds good yeah this is a mammoth sounds good okay well you know i hope that gold's not going to change too fast i'll see y'all soon okay thanks all right good one. take it easy bye bye, bye.